0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm happy to be joined today by Christina Gerhardt. She's associate professor at University of Hawaii at Manua and a senior fellow at the University of California, Berkeley. Her environmental journalism has appeared in Grist, The Nation, The Progressive, and The Washington Monthly, and she's here now to talk about her second book. It's called Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. It comes out today from University of California Press. Dr. Gerhardt,
1: welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you.
0: This is such a cool project, and and it's really one that has to be seen and and kind of held in one's hand um, to be believed. It's sort of this just the just this wonderful environmental studies coffee table book of all sorts, and it does much more than that. Also, it's uh, uh, but we'll we'll do our best to give listeners a sense of it. Um, but before we get into the unusual architecture and the formatting of the book, um, I'd love to just talk about your approach to the topic of islands and their inhabitants. Um, In your introduction, you position your book as offering a a narrative vantage point, in your words, um, distinct from those from which islands have so often been viewed by outsiders. So what are these kind of distorting traditions that you're pushing against here in this project?
1: Right. Yeah, thanks for the question. Thanks to an opening and just mentioning what uh, a gorgeous, in your words, book the – Sea change is it really uh it is one that's best held in the hands as you put it, rather than read as a PDF. I thank Leah Chandra, University of California Press's in-house designer, and Molly Roy, who made the maps in the book for all of their contributions. Um it's very much intended to be an atlas in the old-fashioned sense, but a decolonized one. Which brings me to your question. Um, I I noticed when I I I moved to Hawaii about 12 years ago to take up this position at the University of Hawaii. And I was reading a lot of different literature, both about islands, but also by islanders. And one of the things that I noticed, one of the things that sea change pushes against two traditions, and the first one is really a Western colonial tradition of reading islands. So your listeners may have read growing up. Western literature dating back to, I don't know, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe or Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from the 18th and 19th century, respectively, or even um, more recent 20th century books such as Golding's Lord of the Flies. So I was looking at these texts and I, I thought this is really interesting. They're giving us a framing of islands that often features cannibalism or boys shipwrecked on an island and things don't end so well in the case of Lord of the Flies, all sorts of things that had so little to do with what I was seeing and experiencing living every day on islands. And then most importantly, the kinds of things that I was learning about by reading the actual texts of islanders. So that's, you know, that's the first thing that I'm really trying to do is push back against these traditions and center instead Islanders voices. The other thing that you already touched on a little bit in your description of the book is that sea change really engages and builds on scientific reports about sea level rise, but it expands the focus in my estimation we have enough scientific reports about the climate crisis and sea level rise by which I don't mean these the scientific research is unimportant or that we don't need new reports what I mean is sea change builds on that science and it brings in other disciplines I often refer to it as a symphony by which I mean that it' Yes, feature science, but also the maps that I mentioned previously, there's art, there's essays, and there's poetry. And then again, it centers the voices of islanders, specifically indigenous Pacific, and black Caribbean islanders. So they share the stories of their histories, their cultures and knowledges. And I think that's really important in a book about sea level rise, because, as you said, it's a coffee table book. it's It's a bleak topic, but it makes people want to engage with that topic. But it tells you what what is at stake. it It opens up, you know, the connection of caring as one learns about these histories and these cultures and these languages and ways of life that are at risk.
0: That's great. i want to get I want to get back to a lot of that. Um, I was thinking how, the book really makes clear, you know, breaks through the colonial gaze and all of that, and it really makes clear the diversity of experiences on on islands around the world. But at the same time, when you read it kind of end to end, you see these common experiences that that people who live on islands, no matter how far apart from each other they they um, live their lives, they they share, and they, the islands and islanders share quite a lot. And so, what would you say are some of the common features of of island experience? Yeah,
1: the some of the common features. So what I noticed immediately in Hawaii that I. That's that I found of interest and take, took note of, is that there's affinities between or among Hawaiian islanders and people on or from, because a lot of this book is also about diasporic populations and the reasons why people live in diasporas. But there's affinities between Hawaiian islanders and people on or from the Philippines, from Guam, from Cuba, and from Puerto Rico. And the reason, even though those geographies are really distant, some of those uh, Geographies I just mentioned, some of those islands are in the Pacific, some are in the, in the Caribbean, and then they are different parts of the Pacific. Um, the reason is, despite the distances, they'd all been involved in the U.S.-Spanish uh, war. So on the negative side of the ledger, the answer to your question about these affinities that islanders have with one another is a direct result of colonialism that can manifest in linguistic um, affinities that that often also erase indigenous languages and islands in the Pacific. So the Spanish language among all the islands I just mentioned would be an example, um, but it's, it's colonialism and modern day imperialism on the positive side of the ledger. Cause a lot of this book is about, putting Indigenous or Caribbean, Black Caribbean often, um, but not exclusively, of putting those histories out there, on the positive side of the ledger, there's deep histories of affinities that exist among islanders. So in the Pacific, there's um, Tongan theorist and writer Epili Ofa. he writes about how colonizers read islands as remote and distant, but of how islanders themselves seeing themselves in a deep ocean that that is their center read themselves as connected and interestingly when I was reading some of the writings of Edward Glissant about the Caribbean he was writing about this concept of what he calls relationality and how islanders in the Caribbean respecting all the differences among these islands they still view themselves as very connected because of their geography and I thought isn't that interesting it's such a different way of of seeing islands once you actually view them from within that ocean or that sea, right? There's yeah. these affinities.
0: I love that. And although one could imagine taking on an, an intellectual project like this and and turning out a traditional monograph or in, any other kind of forms. And so what made you choose the Atlas?
1: Um, the the reason that I decided to, to work with the form of the Atlas, which is really one of the most colonial. Yeah. <laughs> Um, forms of, of literature <laughs> right. and of mapping right it really follows with this explore you know this this vantage point of exploring of of navigation of you know, The supposed new and the supposed you know terra nullis the empty land that that is supposedly discovered one of the reasons i decided to work with the atlas is actually to decolonize the atlas so i have a couple of examples of i looked for and also included looked for in the archives or in, in conversations with people in different communities examples of indigenous mapping and i have have two examples in the book um one is in greenland where these wooden maps are created and Greenland is is what opens the atlas because the source of the there's a lot of land ice there about eighty five percent of the the of Greenland is ice often it's ice sheets that are two feet deep, and when it melts it is the source of sea level rise as far away as the Marshall Islands so I open with Greenland, um, but in Greenland there are these wooden maps and explorers were kind of surprised when they were learning about them from the indigenous Inupiaq that live in Greenland, that they didn't they, didn't, they weren't used in the way that people in the West use maps, which is that they try to, you know, relate what they're seeing to what is on the page in front of them. It was holding these wooden maps and telling the story of the land formation. It was that story and the embodied experience that was most important to the extent that the maps, the wooden maps themselves were carved and then were disposed of. They weren't used for the journey. They were learning tools. They were like these, these assistances, in coming to understand the, the land that one was moving through. And that's a radical shift from the way that maps get used in the West. Um, I have stick charts from the Marshall Islands that are included, and they, they have this kind of uh, you know contrast to Western notions of mapping too. They include swells, which are related to, but different from waves. They're deeper, they move at longer uh, lengths than waves do, and importantly swells are some they're these longer deeper you know waves um, that get bent by islands so if you can read the swells and you notice that there's a bent swell you know that there's an island up ahead now that's that's an attunedness to the water around you that is incredibly deep but when you see the stick charts it means that they have you know, they they have a very different kind of relationship to the world around them than Western kinds of maps do. And one of the reasons that I include these, these kinds of examples is both to include indigenous ways of mapping, but also because Western colonizers were utterly befuddled when they landed in the Pacific and they were encountering these incredible navigators who didn't have things like, you know, the magnetic compass? Who weren't using latitude and longitude? Right, longitude is is mapped onto the Greenwich coordinates, um, and so they weren't using these kinds of systems of navigation. This is true in Arab navigation, also uh, Chinese navigation, um, that predates certain s- systems and conventions that are common to North and West Europe. And so, what I was trying to do was also tell different stories and histories of navigation. Um, yeah, and so did decolonize the atlas.
0: <laughs> there's there's lots of great history of science, and history of technology in the book too. You have got so much in there, it's amazing. Um, I'm wondering, you know, you know, I think there's I don't know. Google told me there's nine hundred thousand islands on the planet. I don't know. I don't know how we get an actual count if it's even possible. Um, your pro your book is your book is substantial, but you profile about fifty. Um, and the diversity is really exciting, right? There's there are these South Sea islands that you can imagine, you know, um, Robinson Crusoe living on. There's also Singapore as a, as a nation state. There's our city state. There's also, you know, a, 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 is it Deal Island in the Chesapeake Bay? And so the, it's really it's really an exciting diversity of of places. How did you choose?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. I mean, obviously, given the numbers that you just um, mentioned in terms of how many islands there are, I could not include all. And you also included a beautiful range because. Um, There's 49 in in Sea Change, 49 islands. They are not all island nations. So I intentionally included islands that are of a diverse range of entities. Yeah. Yeah. The Deal Island is obviously, you know, is not an island nation. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's in Chesapeake Bay. It's part of the U.S. <laughs> so there's, there's examples along those lines. There are islands that are colonized, um, and they get into that tricky history. I chose the 49 islands. I did um, starting with the most at-risk islands, so the islands that are most at risk of sea level rise globally. And the book is global in in scope, as you were mentioning. Um, the four that are most at risk are, are Kiribati, uh, the Marshall Islands, and Tuvalu in the Pacific, and then the Maldives in the Indian Ocean. And there's two different types of islands. Those are all atolls or low-lying islands. And those are islands that are as the name indicates, low-lying and most at risk of being underwater. Um, By contrast, there's high islands or volcanic islands. And I included some volcanic islands, which I went back and forth with both my cartographer and the editor at UC Press about this um, because they both had questions about why to include high islands. And the reason is, is fairly simple. Once one thinks about it, high islands or volcanic islands typically have a dome. They're often, you know, the name volcanic indicates this, they're often still active volcanoes. And because they have that peak, most of the people that live on volcanic islands are clustered around the coastline because the inland area is so steep. And it's also at risk of having that volcano potentially become active again. And that clustering around the coastline puts them right in the way of of sea level rise. So even if the whole island might not be as at risk as a low-lying atoll island, of being totally underwater, the people who are in the infrastructure, right, that that typically follows people or that people set up for themselves um, close to where they live are both really at risk, even on high islands. Um, but I decided to go with 49. We were talking about different numbers. I wanted, we we wavered between 20 and, and 50. I wanted enough variation. Um, the book is very webby in its structure. So it doesn't need to be read from from beginning to end. It's very browsable in, by by design. Um because it's a coffee table book, because it's intended to engage the the modern attention span. So it can be read and browsed, you know, it can be read in bits and chunks and browsed in a non sequential order. Um that is to some extent also echoing the st- the geographic space of islands within an ocean that one can you know jump from this location to that location but there's enough islands that there's reinforcement of certain ideas so infrastructure which i've mentioned which includes roads or airports are often located close to waterways especially on continents you know in boston or new york city or, or the san francisco bay area power plants, water waste uh, treatment facilities, all often close to to water. So I I trace infrastructure. I also trace, say, sea turtle nesting grounds on a couple of these islands with enough repetition that people get the point and without... um, the terrible phrase beating a, a you know, dead horse, mm. um, just <laughs> just rehashing the idea ad nauseum. So that's part of what's going on with the structure of the book. Uh, 49 is an homage to the San Francisco Bay Area, which is home. So it's that seven by seven <laughs> um, mile space or the 49 mile scenic drive here, the 49ers. So there's a, however you want to read it, it's <laughs> it's reference to home.
0: I love that Easter egg. Um, you know <laughs> you mentioned your cartographer and and for most of the islands here your entry features an original map that depicts the current day coastline and then and then predicted coastlines for 2050 and, and 2100 or whatever we end up calling that year when we get there um you know there isn't you know of course there, there is a scientific consensus about rising oceans we all know that but there the act of depicting future coastlines, isn't an objective exercise, right? It's, it's There's a lot of choices to make there. And so what makes it tricky to draw those lines as, as you both drew and, and how do you make the choices that are required to do that?
1: Right, thank you for, for catching that. So I drew on um, the intergovern- the UN Scientific Body is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC for short. And they put out these reports roughly every five years. Um, they just put out their sixth assessment report last year. And that's what I drew on for the science. Um, they, the, the, there's, there's consensus, you know, among scientists, and they're usually at the conservative end of these kinds of projections. By which I mean, whatever the IPCC, uh, the IPCC says, any article that one reads, that's an update of that in the Washington Post or in the New York Times, you know, or the LA Times reporting on the latest uh, science, you know, published in nature, or whatever is going to be more intense than this. So the IPCC says we're going to get a, a foot by um, 2050, we're going to get three feet by 2100. So those are the numbers that we basically used, totally aware of the fact that by the time the book was out, you know, 10 other studies were going to have superseded this. And it was good. It was going to keep going that way. Um, we're talking about whether or not we want to do a web version of the book to keep it more up to date or just kind of, you know, a, a companion on the web. Um, and then there's questions of who keeps it up, you know, yada, yada about that. Um, but so the, the science that um, Molly Roy, who's the cartographer for Sea uh, Change uh, used is science that I gave her. And one of the things that that I had to discuss with her, but also with my editor, other people on, at the UC end, is that sea level rise isn't a line. It's really best thought of as a zone of inundation. So, so looking for that line on the map and drawing that line on the map is is one way of depicting sea level rise, but what makes a place uninhabitable is, is being flooded again and again and again. So the Marshall Islands that I mentioned previously, one of the foremost at-risk island nations, they rest on average six and a half feet above sea level rise. So when I say we're going to get three feet by the end of the century, people might breathe a sigh of relief and say, oh, okay, well, they're they're not at risk. They're not going to be underwater. In fact, they've already declared states of emergency twice because of extreme flooding and once because of Of drought. So it's really this, you know, this being inundated and not being able to live a livable life on atolls anymore that's the issue. Um, That's one thing that makes it really tricky to draw lines like we do. Um, And I think just getting into this issue in the text and the prose about zones of inundation versus lines was one of the things that we thought about with regard to the relationship between the maps and the text. Um, and that's those are conversations we had too. Is how do you relate what's going, what's being demonstrated or visualized in the maps, and what's going on in the text? So another kind of example of of risks of inundation is um, salinization, which basically refers to salt content in, say, soil or in freshwater aquifers. A lot of island nations really. Are they're subsistence, uh, subsistence farmers? So they rely on what they can grow, or they rely on what they can fish to feed themselves. They don't walk down to the local grocery store. In other words, and when you have saltwater coming in through the ocean, through this kind of lapping at the shores and inundating the soil structure, it means that um, the crops can't. Can Crops can't, they take up fresh water, they can't take up salty water. And it means that agriculture is increasingly at risk. Um, a lot of island nations also rel- rely on, like the the Marshall Islands that I mentioned, they're about, they're a few yards across, and they're a couple miles long, the atolls that constitute the Marshall Islands, so really tiny spaces of land. Um, and they don't have rivers running through them. So they rely... For all of their freshwater, they rely on the rainwater that falls from the sky. So they have rainwater catchment systems, or they have freshwater aquifers. And again, when you get the sea level rise increase, it can salinize the freshwater. So then they don't have enough freshwater. So there's, you know, there's a number of, of risks associated with this inundation that makes life increasingly difficult on these atolls.
0: That is really a major theme of the book. We see chapter after chapter is, is the way that it's beyond just eroding coastlines. We have lots of ways that rising water threatens island communities. And even in, in we see in several places, it threatens communities far away from islands that are linked to islands through things like undersea communication cables or mm-hmm. even less less kind of benignly overseas military bases. I don't know if you want to say anything about, about that, the way that continental folks are threatened by rising levels and oceans.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, uh, this, this comes back to, to, I think the, the you know, islands are really important, um, in terms of military, but also in terms of undersea uh, nodes, Nicole Starzelski has a published a book a couple of years ago called Undersea Networks. And it really traces these, the infrastructure, meaning in this case, specifically, what was in the early 20th century cable lines, And then later and in our present day became uh, internet connection. So people often think of the internet, she points out, as being something that is all air focused in the cloud, in the sky, like these kinds of things, right? And that that is true to a certain extent, but a lot of the cables really still connect through these incredibly dense cable clusters that run through the ocean, Tonga, um, the Pacific Island nation of Tonga. Which is one of the the it is actually, I think, the only nation, in the Pacific that was never colonized and has continuously had an indigenous monarchy. Um, Tonga is a major node for uh deep sea cables, but that also means whenever we have hurricanes, you know, they might be at risk. Tonga's had outages a couple of times. Um, the geographer and artist, Trevor Paglin, who granted me permission to reprint a couple of his Uh, Pieces of art in the book. He traveled extensively, looking for these, looking to photograph um, these these kind of connections on the west coast and the east coast of the U.S. He has a couple photographs from Morro Bay in California, and then a couple from different parts and on the east coast around New York City. Uh, And then he was also in the Pacific. He was in Hawaii, and he photographed in a couple of different uh, places the the really unsuspecting places where these these deep sea networks form a cluster, so that's really important. But they layer, as Nicole Sarazelsky argues in her book, they really layer onto earlier colonial histories of connections. So the early colonizers and their uh, the islands that you know, say the U.S. or say Spain or name another entity, Japan. Um, the nations that they had colonized were nations among which they typically laid different kind of cable networks. And that's something she talks about in her book.
0: And then speaking of military bases, in your chapter on Guam, you note that the island appears on the UN's list of non-self-governing territories, or as you put it, places that have yet to be decolonized. Um, And you note there's 17 territories on that list, which is a number that surprised me. And I can't decide whether I was surprised that there are only 17 or that the number of being that small, why are there not zero at this point? And so why do you think colonialism has remained? And almost all of those, those places are islands. And so why do you think colonialism has remained as strong as it has on, on islands?
1: Yeah. Thanks for the question and, and for catching that detail. Um, I do mention that Guam is, is on the UN's list of non-governing, uh, the UN's list of non-self-governing territories that have yet to be colonized. And most of the, the, the territories that are on the list, as you rightly point out, um, are islands. And I think the reason relates to the previous question, um, where you asked, uh, in part, about the use of islands for military installation. So I have a big, chunky paragraph in the introduction that I was thinking about taking out, and then I decide to leave it in. And the reason I was thinking of taking it out is because it's a list. And of course, as any writer knows, a list does not you know, does not (laughs) exemplify that one writes well. Um, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so I decided to leave it in. And it's a list of the 52. uh, I believe it's 52 off the top of my head. It's a list of the military installations that the US has on islands around the world. And the reason I left it in is because I'm not quite sure that that a lot of people know, maybe people who are island dwellers know this, or who uh, have military relations or island relations know this. But I'm not sure that, that, you know, everyone is aware of how many military installations are located on islands. Um, And even once military installations are removed, and this is around the world, even once military installations are removed, um, they often have Really incredibly terrible impacts that remain on islands. So, you know, the Marshall Islands, just to name one example, was subjected to dozens of nuclear tests on Bikini Atoll, which is one of the atolls that makes up the island nation of uh, the Republic of Marshall Islands. Bikini Atoll is no longer inhabitable, and it is the word from which we get, you know, the bikini, the swimsuit. Um, kind of gear. But that's one of the examples. Um, Viejes in Puerto Rico was used for bombing practice and still has ordinances in it. There's an island, neighboring deal island in Chesapeake Bay that people are also not allowed to go on to because it was used for bombing practice. There's Ko'olave, which is a island neighboring. It's one of the Hawaiian islands that neighbors Oahu. So there are all these examples of what islands have been subjected to. And you know it's not only humans that can't use them but you know it's also all of the flora and fauna um you know of these islands kathy jetnil kieshner who's climate envoy for the marshall islands and also a poet she right. has a poem called history lesson that your listeners can easily find by just doing a, a search for history Lesson" in marshall islands or history lesson and kathy um it's a poem about the impacts of the nuclear testing on the Marshall Islands, on Marshall Islanders, and she's lost family members to to the impacts, you know, high rates of cancer among them. Um, so this is, you know, the, these kinds of impacts last. And I think, you know, there's all sorts of things one could say about nuclear energy, which is having a renaissance, but I think mm-hmm. that's probably gonna take <laughs> us to a field. But, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I'll just well, she, put that there.
0: She's so great and she actually um she she's an embodiment of, of something you've mentioned a couple of times that I have not um yet have had a chance to pick up on which is that the the book is really distinctive for how it incorporates the the voice of islanders. This is I mean obviously your work is is the is the dominant voice here but it's a it's a polyvocal work here and and why mm-hmm. was that important to you and and could you share a bit about maybe a, a couple of the specific voices you were excited to include?
1: Oh, absolutely. I would be delighted to. Um, In fact, I would be delighted to have that be the majority of the show. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, it is really the genesis of the book, right, is what I was talking about in terms of the kind of narratives or the images, you know, f- from literary history up to military use up to the tourism industry of islands, versus the kinds of stories that Islanders share about themselves, which are which are both bleak, but also, you know, just just filled with joy and celebration. Um, So I spent a lot of time in the Pacific uh, Literature Archives at the University of Hawaii at Manoa reading poems. So each, there's 49 islands, as you mentioned, and each one more or less, but not all of them have a, a, a little poem or, or a text um, after a text that I've written um, by Islanders included after the text that I wrote after the maps that Molly um, Roy created. And I, I spent a lot of time reading the poems and selecting them. So there's, I mean, everything that's mentioned from the kinds of foods that are on islands, you know, the breadfruit and the guava and the passion fruit, and just which, which reinforces that notion of really living close to or with the land um, and subsistence farming that I was mentioning earlier, the kind of fish uh, that are that are common in the area. So they they really slow us down, I hope, when we read them and have us think about that space and just linger in it a little bit more. Kathy Jetnell kieshners work um, was really influential for this writing. Craig Santos-Paris, who's a colleague at the University of Hawaii and also a poet, um Chamorro from Guam, Indigenous Chamorro from Guam was really influential. Julian Agon is um an environmental lawyer, also Chamorro from Guam, who's been working on a case that's made headlines in the last month. Um he has an a law firm called Blue Ocean Law that he co-founded. He's a lawyer but also a writer. And he uh, put forward this case, he's involved with this case that the Pacific Island Nation of Vanuatu has bought, brought to the International Court of Justice, which is asking that they that they state that nations in the global north are disproportionately responsible for producing CO2 emissions, and therefore for the kinds of impacts that frontline nations are disproportionately experiencing. Um, we're waiting to see what comes out of that. But he, you know, as I mentioned, he's also a writer and he has this beautiful book that was published. The original title of it was The Properties of Perpetual Light. And mm. it's uh, recently been republished in the Caribbean. Dion Brand's work uh, was really powerfully influential. Um, she's from uh, Trinidad and Tobago and uh, living diasporically in Toronto. Of course, when I think of Toronto, I think of Christina Sharp's work, um, mm. the work by Sadia Hartman. And then, of course, Nourbezi Phillips' work, um, Zong in particular. So there's, yeah, I think Lisson, Braithwaite, their writings. There's, yeah, there's Great a stuff. whole world out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and a lot of it's in the book, but of course, even more than yeah. that. Um, one thing that's in the book that we haven't talked much about, we've talked about what 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 the, right, the climate crisis is doing to islands. But we also have a lot to say about what islanders, how are they responding to the climate crisis? Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, not all of your maps projecting these future shapes of these islands, um, paint a picture of, of shrinking islands. We have some islands are getting bigger in the silhouettes in the map here. And so what, what are quote unquote reclaimed islands and how do they fit into your exploration of our warming world?
1: I'm so glad that you caught that because it isn't only a book about shrinking islands. It is also about growing islands or uh, what gets called land reclamation. I have mm-hmm. issues with that term <laughs> and I'm I'm glad you're putting it in, you know, in little quotes as you're using that term reclaimed. Um, so I have a t- issues with the term land reclamation because it leads you to believe that it basically it works in terms of the engineering uh of it it works by infill and it leads you to believe the term land reclamation that the land is being reclaimed but Mm -hmm. it's actually not land that is being reclaimed it is land that is being created by infill so again if your listeners are in a more um Continental environment, you can you can think about a lot of the geography of Boston, and a lot of the geography of the San Francisco Bay. Um, This holds true for New York area too. a lot of the expansion of cities that are located next to water was achieved by dint of infill and not coincidentally those are specifically the regions that are most at risk of sea level rise right now so one Mm. of the tricks that i do in my book um, is to look at old maps of different geographic locations i've done this in the boston public library i've done this um in new york at the public library and also in san francisco uh and I love, I love public libraries is one thing. I've done this with students. <laughs> um, they have so many different treasures. I love libraries that have map collections, also photography collections. And you can use photography for part of this, too, to to, you know, give a different kind of sense of what cities have looked like in different eras. But if you take an old map, like USGS has, the United States Geological Survey has a lot of maps that are available easily online. And I use those for, especially uh, specifically for what the work I was doing with Deal Island and the Chesapeake Bay. And I was looking at expansion and contraction of islands. Um, if you look at maps from, say, 1850, and you look at... Um, I use Climate Central, which is a website. They have a website where you can just click in a location and you can look at like what sea level rises for your home address mm-hmm. um, and measure it by three feet by five feet, whatever. Um, but they also have maps that are that are more um Aerial for, for different geographies that I used uh, for this book. Climate central's in Princeton. I had a position um, at Princeton teaching environment and humanities for a year and a half. Anyways, so I compared these old USGS maps or maps from libraries with Climate Central's sea level rise predictors. NOAA has a sea level rise predictor maps too that people can use, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Association Administration. Um, If you compare the old maps and the current maps, what you will see is the places, like I said, that are most at risk of sea level rise right now, are often places that used infill in order to expand their geographic footprint. And and I, I think that's something that's really important to be aware of, whether it's because we're buying real estate, because that's where the school is is located, and it might be underwater, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, airports are really at risk for this reason. I think that's a really important phenomenon to be aware of. And then we come back to your question. So there are islands <laughs> that are reclaiming land. That's a terrible idea for all the reasons that I just <laughs> mentioned. Right. And yeah. it's understandable. Islands have a limited amount of space. That's why real estate is so expensive in Oahu. Um, the fact that the military is using about a third of the real estate is another thing that drives up the cost and gives us less land for, you know, for agriculture to be self-sustaining. Um, but I think it it really creates a precarious situation. So Singapore is doing this um, and it's in the Atlas, like you mentioned, Bahrain, the kingdom of Bahrain is also... in the the atlas and sea change. And it's also doing this kind of land reclamation. And those are examples of hard engineering to think one's way out of this pickle of sea level rise. Another example of hard engineering that I engage in the book is raising islands. So there are engineering firms um, for the Marshall Islands, for example, they're in conversation in Kiribati with a Japanese engineering firm that has put forward proposals to raise their island um the maldives is in the process of building an entirely new island right now uh and that's that's also in the atlas but the you know unlike the maldives nations like caribas or uh the marshall islands they have really small gdps so they have very limited budgets in order to undertake some of this and that's you know, it's a huge issue with sea level rise. And, you know, it is, I mean, the climate crisis, it is one example of the climate crisis, but the disproportionate CO2 emissions. Historically, the U.S. is is, is the nation that is most responsible for producing CO2 emissions or, put differently, for creating the climate crisis. Currently, China is producing most uh, the most CO2 emissions in the world, but a lot of the discussion there is also around the fact that what is produced in China and goes on their ledger is consumed by Americans and travels mm-hmm. over here. And so like, you know, how should these ledgers in terms of CO2 accounting work? But but those are the two nations that are most responsible historically or present day. And island nations that are at the forefront disproportionately of experiencing the impact of sea level rise are in the pacific or in the caribbean and they've done the least i mean island nations have contributed something like you know one percent of co2 emissions and mm-hmm. and they're at risk of, of going under and that's that's hugely what motivated this book project well, speaking and that's something
0: you come back to a lot and speaking of that disproportionate emissions and disproportionate threats and the tiny gdps of, of island nations i was reminded of one of the headlines that came out of cop 27 um, back in november was the establishment of a "quote unquote" loss and damage fund? Um, and could you say a bit about what, th- what that is for listeners that haven't haven't been briefed on that? And uh, and how effectively do you think it, it addresses this injustice?
1: Yeah, that's. Thank you for bringing that to your listeners' attention. I really appreciate it. So, loss and damage um, was was one of the successes out of uh, last year's COP twenty seven. So, COP twenty seven is um, the. The COPS COPS and all caps are conferences. They're called Conference of the Party, COP. Um, and they're the parties refer to all the different nations that participate in the conference. Um, so there's 198 198 nations that gather annually, typically towards the end of the year, and they. They meet um, as part of the UN to talk about some sort of an international treaty engaging with the climate crisis or addressing the climate crisis. Um, loss and damage was a success coming out of last year's um, COP 27. A lot of people like to critique the UN in these conferences, and I'll just list up some of the critiques. Um, they're too slow moving is what what a lot of people say. They've been taking place for decades, and they haven't really led to any any kind of a result, even if there was a treaty that was agreed upon or agreed to, it's not legally binding Is another criticism. And I think all of these criticisms are fair. One of the things that I think is really impressive about the UN is it is the one forum, unlike, say, a G7 or G20 meeting, where all 198 nation states get together and nations in the global north that are disproportionately responsible for creating the climate crisis have to look the nations that are at the front lines uh and suffering these impacts in the eye and you know they all get to voice their opinions and that's the genesis of the book a lot of people think it's because I've been living in Hawaii it actually predates that so I've been covering mm. these climate negotiations since 2009 and what I noticed as a journalist and covering them is So what you hear is you hear the 198 nations individually stand up and before they weigh in on a point, they'll say, well, the situation in my home country, I just want to acknowledge is as follows. So last year was Pakistan, a third of, you know, the country was, it was flooded. A third of the country was underwater. There was billions of dollars of damage. 3,000 people died and half of the deaths were children. Um, The other issue last year that kept coming up was the drought in the Horn of Africa. So nations stand up individually; they also stand up as part of clusters. Um, In UN speak, that's the least developed countries of the Africa group or the Alliance of Small Island States. And so they'll say these kinds of things and then they'll weigh in on whatever point is being discussed. And what I found interesting there is, although I as a journalist, Having a seat, you know, at the at the table there, at least covering it and hearing this day in and day out, had a good sense after two weeks of what was going on worldwide. Um, when I looked at even really great institutions that you know publications that have great climate coverage, The Guardian, for example, consistently does and has for decades had great coverage of the climate crisis you'd find the U.S.-China standoff dominating the headlines. And I want to be totally clear, I don't think that issue is unimportant. I think it's a crucial piece of the puzzle. But I was like, where are these islanders' voices and what they are disproportionately uh, experiencing? So to come back to loss and damage, this is a huge success coming out of last year. Uh, Nations from the global south have been pushing really hard for this For 30 years. This is a fund that they have been working to get established for decades. And Tina Stege, who is a climate envoy from the Marshall Islands, was at at the forefront of of leading this, of course, as many political movements are a collective effort. Um, but it was a huge success last year. What it means for people who aren't familiar with the lingo is uh, that a facility, some sort of a funding mechanism be set up so that nations in the global north pay nations in the global south who are disproportionately experiencing the impacts of loss and of damage. Loss is, is irretrievable and damage refers to the things that have been damaged, but we're recovery as possible but this is a real demand for some have referred to it as reparations others have pushed back against that language um but it is in in essence it is uh you know putting forward an acknowledgement of this disproportionate responsibility um and then there's the issue that i mentioned of the gdps right the the disproportionate least small gdps in the global south and frontline communities being able to deal with this. Um, Barbados's prime minister, Mia Motley, has been terrific at thinking about these financial structures. And she's been asking for, and I wrote um both about loss and damage. I also wrote about Mia Motley's um plans. It's been called the Barbados uh, proposal, but she's been asking for a rethinking of the everything basically that came out of the nineteen forty-four Bretton Woods agreement. So the World Bank, the IMF, the way that these entities give out loans, she's asking for them to rethink their their funding mechanisms, taking into account Uh, Both that some of the debt is a direct result of colonialism, but also taking account climate crisis, and that a lot of nations now have debt because they're disproportionately spending their budgets on dealing with the climate crisis. And I'm really curious to see what comes out of that.
0: Well, I'm, I'm... I'm imagining and hoping and expecting that the, the months ahead will have you very busy talking about islands with readers, especially hopefully ignorant continent dwellers like myself. Um, but looking a little further ahead here, when you find yourself with some more time, do you have any future projects in mind that you'd be willing to give listeners a sneak preview of?
1: Um, thanks for the question. I, I do want to uh, cycle, I want to track the work of Mia Motley in revising uh, the, the financial systems. I think there's a lot of structures that come out of, out of the the you know the world war II era we have the refu- the convention on on refugees that does not include the word climate refugee right. that's one big overhaul that people have been pushing forward some are, are are critical some think that that would be helpful i'm interested in following that debate and then you know her call for rethinking a lot of the structures that also grew out of the end of the nazi era and world war II. some I'm, I'm really Tracking some of those changes because, you know, goodness, 70 years later, we definitely need to rethink some of those structures. Um, I'm thinking of working on a future book that engages sea level rise in cities globally. So that's, that's the preview for the next book project.
0: Cool, cool. Well, for the time being, we're very lucky to have this book, which is, again, Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. It comes out today from University of California Press. Its author is, and my guest has been, Christina Gerhardt. Tina, thank you so much for your time and for this gorgeous and important book.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great to be with you, Brian.